Morning, everybody. Does everybody have a copy of the uh, um, handout available to them? Then if you would join me with the, uh, the opening prayer. Uh, this is uh, Luther's morning prayer. It's out of the small catechism. And uh, it's one that uh, um, you may have actually memorized at some point or some version of it anyhow. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. So Reformation Day, um, maybe a little bit more history than what we're used to, but um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, Martin Luther uh, was born November 10, 1483, and uh, he died February 18, 1546. He was the son of a copper miner, and um, his birth and his life are kind of at an interesting time uh, in the history of the world. Uh, you have a shift going on in the way that uh, people view economics. Uh, we're moving away from feudalism into a, a market type of economy. And uh, uh, it, do you remember feudalism from you know, social studies back in the day where you know, you basically the Lord or the King owned all the land and gave you the privilege of working part of it. And for the privilege of working part of it, you got to keep a little piece of what you, you know, raised. You know, but it all belonged to you know, the Lord or the king or whomever. Um, so, you know, it, it, a lot of Luther's life is change, big changes uh, taking place in the world. Um, some other really significant event, events like right before, um, right around the time Luther's born, uh, things like the Renaissance, or if you're English, apparently it's the Renaissance. I don't know. Different emphasis on a different syllable. But but there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on in the world. And one of the things about Luther, you know, he was a genius. Um, and it's not just kind of a, uh, you know, oh, we, we love Martin Luther because we're Lutherans. Um, th this... If, if you go into my office and you look at uh, the shelf right in, uh, there are like two whole shelves just full of things that he wrote. He, he debated, he spoke with people. And, and that's only part of the stuff that's translated into English. There's still volume upon volume of things that have never been translated uh, from the German. Um, he dialogued with uh, some really important people at the time. And, and he was able to see things in, in a way um, where he took complex ideas, made them simple, uh, made them understandable, um, and he did it artistically as well. You know, so so that, that's kind of what I mean by he was a genius. Um, so at 1501, he, uh, he entered the uh, University of Erfurt. Um, I mentioned his dad was a, a, a copper miner. Um, he was able to put money together to send his son to college, and uh, uh, Martin was actually um, Hans's retirement plan, you know, that, that he would be able to take care of his family financially. Um, so 1501, he enters the university. 1502, he earned his bachelor's degree. He did. I don't remember. I was trying to find quickly, you know, how many of, of each. Was he but the youngest? That, I think he's the oldest, <laughs> but I'm not sure. No, I, I, I actually don't know that. I'll have to look now. I'll let you know in a second. Oh, <laughs> we're going to ask Dr. Google? Excellent. 1505, he earned his Master's of Arts. Are, are you checking that timeline, by the way? Yeah, he, you know, and, and education was different at the time in the way that, you know, it was programmed, but it was the type of thing that um, you went at your pace, and uh, his pace was blistering. Um, in May of 1505, he entered law school, and uh, 
it was July of 1505 that the, the thunderstorm experience took place. And I, I talked about this in the sermon. This is one of the most famous stories about Martin Luther, um, that he was heading back from home to, uh, to law school, and um, a big storm came on him, and there was a lightning strike that came near him, and, uh, and he cried out, St. Anne, save me, I'll become a monk. And um, you know, notice it's not Lord God, it is St. Anne. Uh, St. Anne uh, was the, the mother of Mary, supposedly. We don't actually have any account or record of this. Um, St. Anne is the patron saint of, of women in various states. It was really kind of interesting. Uh, there's a list of um, you know, women who want to get married, uh, women um, who are newlyweds, women who uh, are pregnant, women who are widowed. You know, it just you know, I'm like, why not just you know, patron saint of women? You know, but it was it had all of these different life events that were listed there. Um, saint Anne was also the uh, patron saint of horseback riders. Don't know why. Cabinet makers, again, and miners. And remember what. Uh, Old man Luther did. He was a copper miner, right? You know, and so this this was part of the uh, um, part of the spirituality of uh, of the people. They believed that saints had done so many good things in their lives. It's like they had extra credit and they could share it. They had a better in with God, so you would pray to a saint who then would intervene with God, and maybe God would listen to the saint because certainly not going to listen to somebody like me, type of thing. That's kind of the reasoning. Luther probably had eight siblings, yet only one brother, Jacob, and three sisters survived to adulthood. Which is another thing that was really normal in those days. Sure. Yeah. Um, there, I remember reading something. They, they would literally name their kids. Um, so it, we'll go with Hans. You would have Gross Hans and Klein Hans, Big Hans and Little Hans. And uh, it's because you were counting on probably one of them would die. So, yeah. Um, notice that you know Luther's spiritual life is very transactional. You know, I I do that I might get something back. He he's making trying to make a trade here. Um, and I think it's interesting. His dad didn't believe that the event happened, which. It definitely caused a riff in the family. You know, I mean, can can you imagine even now saving up to send a kid to uh, to college, and then the next thing you know, um, they they walk out and take a vow of poverty, and uh, they're like, you know, everything that you just poured into them, there will be zero ROI. Um, he thought that Martin had just made the whole thing up as an excuse to go into the monastery. And Martin, actually, he tried to, uh, to convince his dad um, that this was going to be a big benefit for, for dad and for mom because, well, as a monk, he has all this time to pray, and he could pray for their souls, especially after they die and they're suffering in purgatory, and he can help them get out of purgatory sooner. I, I, I don't know how much, you know, whether he made this up or not. Uh, I, I, I kind of tend to believe, you know, when he says this is what happened, that that's what happened. But, um, I mean, all of us here were kids once. Did you ever lie to your parents about why you did something? No, of course not. You know, so I'm, I'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility. But I also kind of think that at some point he would have come clean just from everything that I've ever read. Yeah. Could you expand a little bit on the transactional? I think I know what you mean, but I'm not. He's making a trade. Okay. There's a transaction. Trade offs. Yeah. Okay. And help me, and then I'll do this for you. Gotcha. <coughs> it's amazing. All these people back then prayed to saints, so the saints would do something for them, and it never occurred to them to pray to God. Well, it isn't that they didn't. Uh, it didn't occur to them to pray pray to God. They didn't feel like they had a good enough in mm -hmm. that God would, you know, certainly not listen to them. For one thing, it's the priest's job to pray. 
you know, so you you would have that intervention, and then also, you know, well, I'm such a sinner, and these saints did so many wonderful things, and there was this teaching about merits, you know, so they they, they would just kind of go to where they thought they could get help, which was the saints. Which this is also kind of interesting when you look at um, uh, religion in a place like Haiti. You know, Haiti brought over um, some African animistic religions um, when when the slaves came over, and um, the French taught them Roman Catholicism, taught them all about the saints and which saints to pray for, and they're like, "I pray for to this saint when I have a sore tooth." Well, that's this God back at home. Same thing. You know, and that's part of the voodoo of, of that, that country is they conflate, you know, Roman Catholic saints with these gods from, um, you know, their African heritage. In, in any, any case, it's, you know, looking for somebody else to, to be your helper, somebody else to be the one who, who saves you. And even, even this is transactional. You know, they placed a higher value on what they called religious orders, being a monk or a nun, um, being a priest, you know, any of those church work type of um, situations than they did on a, what you, we might call a secular career. Being a lawyer, being a carpenter, being a mom. You know, um, and later in his life, after he's discovered the gospel, he looks at that relationship between uh, how the, the church viewed these offices compared to you know, normal lay people living in the home and, uh, and the abuses that were taking place in the church and, and the like. And he basically would say, you know, the work of you know, a mom in home is, is a holy work that it's you know, worthy of honor. Um, there's a story, uh, this one actually may be apocryphal, not sure, um, about Christian shoemakers. So, you know, if you're a Christian shoemaker, how do you, how do you show that you're a Christian by, you know, your work? And he said, you know, a Christian shoemaker doesn't put little crosses on the shoes. He does his work well, and he treats his customers fairly. And that's pleasing to God. Using those gifts and abilities that, that God has given to them. And I think that this is one of the things that's really important when we think about you know, what we do. Because so often, I, I think that this is kind of ingrained in us. This idea that you know, there's church stuff and that's holy stuff and then there's work stuff. And that's, you know, well, you just got to get through the world. But no, your, your, your work stuff can be holy too when it's done in faith. You know, um, C.S. Lewis makes that same point. He got it from Luther. <laughs> I <have> no argument. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about a conversation we had with Sam one time, and you were talking about, you know, in his job, he helps people. That's the reason right there. You know, how often do we talk about, you know, I go to work to get my paycheck? Yeah. You know? Who does your work serve? The Lord. It can absolutely, and sometimes it serves you because you get money, you know, to be fed. But mm -hmm. you know, that's part of His blessing for you in your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Cindy. It seems today that that kind of a work ethic that to do what you do well, that you just do it well because it's your job. Now I don't care what job you do, you get a survey. Huh. Constantly giving yeah. surveys to, yeah. but like I don't do half of them because just want to say just do your job. <laughs> yeah, I, I I always kind of enjoy that too, where I go to get my car serviced, and they're like, "We really need you to put fives. Yeah, yeah they, tell, they tell you what's going. Yeah. yeah, because yeah, they get blistered if they don't. Yep. You know? Yep. Yeah. And, and like to hospitals and stuff. Payment is based on a lot of those surveys, but most of the ones you get back are the ones that people don't like what you did. Yeah, because they're motivated to yeah. say something. Yeah. yeah, that's a happy thought, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to respond to this? Somebody's ticked off. Great. Yeah.
So when you look at, at the, uh, the, the world where Luther grew up, there are a, a couple of, well, there are three uh, main spiritual uh, movements that, that formed Luther theologically. There was a mystical movement. Um, did any of you have to read uh, Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a pretty important, you know, classical piece of literature, so, you know, people run into this. It, it's kind of this mystical thing, you know, where how do I get connected to God? Um, the, the one that was more formative for Luther was a guy by the name of Johann Thaler, um, and uh, uh, he wrote this uh, Theology of the Germans, or Theologia Germanica, I think it was, was called, and... Um, this this mysticism and the prayer that that's involved with this and and how do I how do I um, encounter the divine? Uh, what what's that experience like? Uh, was really something that shaped Martin uh, across his life. Um, as a monk, he would have been uh, introduced to this uh, this document. It's called the Ladder of Monks by by Guigo the Second, which I just think is a fantastic name. Um, um, I had to read this uh, for, for my studies, um, not because we accept it, but uh, because it, it's such an important part of how the monks understood what they did. And, uh, and Guigo offered what he said was a ladder for you to reach the divine. Not that you would become divine, but you would experience what it's like to have this unity with God. And uh, he, he said it starts with reading the scriptures, and then meditating on the scriptures. Have any of you ever heard of Lectio Divina? Are you familiar with that phrase? That's, that's the, some of this is involved in, in that. Um, nothing, nothing wrong with, with Lectio. Um, the, the, the problem comes in towards the end here. So you're going to read God's word. You're going to meditate on it. You're going to pray. And then you enter into what he called contemplation. And basically, he would say that as you go through these steps, what's happening is you are becoming a, a uh, coming into a more elevated state. And then when you enter into this uh, contemplation state, it's this uh, um, beatific experience of the presence of God in your life. And you're just completely separated from the world, and you're just experiencing God. What's wrong with that? Doing it yourself. That's one thing. What did she say? I'm sorry. You do it yourself. You know, this is all through your effort. What else? It's always right to stay connected with God. There's nothing wrong with trying to stay connected with God, right? Mm -hmm. But where do we connect with God? Do we leave this world? No. You know, he comes to us in this life. You know, so that, you know, this is that whole monastic thing. I, I become, I, I shun the world. I get rid of the world so that I can experience God. And what the scriptures teach us and what Luther discovered is, no, you experience God in this world. That's what the incarnation is all about. That Jesus actually enters this world to experience the things of this world just like you and me. And, and so, you know, while this was very much part of, of Luther's training and part of his life that, that you, you try to, you know, separate, you know, this is something that he would end up rejecting. And um, a little bit later, I think I, I've got kind of his take on this where he gets rid of uh, uh, some of these and he adds something different. But uh, hopefully we'll get to that in a moment here. At this time, uh, the humanists are around. Uh, Desiderius Erasmus is probably the most famous of them. Uh, it's a whole different way of thinking. It's uh, not just, you know, here's an authority, he says, she says, and then I believe it. Uh, it's a focus on individual uh, rationality. One of the ways that you see this expressed in, uh, in Luther and in the Reformation is a comment that he makes about popes and councils. And, uh, and he says that a layman uh, with his Bible you know, is more authoritative than popes and councils. Mm -hmm. 
Me, me, that, and, that sounds like a dangerous statement. In, in some ways it is. And th- th- honestly, this is one of the reasons that in the Catholic Church they will sometimes refer to Luther as the arch-heretic. Because he places human reason above popes and councils. You know, and in fact, you know, he says, you know, that you need to use human reason to understand the word, which you do. He will also call human reason the devil's whore. <laughs> because it's all about, you know, what, what's its relationship to the word. So, um, and so in the humanist movement, uh, faith is about the formation of the mind to think right things. It's not receiving the word, receiving the message um, in trust for the forgiveness and salvation. It is, this is what it says, and I understand what it says, and I think rightly according to this word. Now, is there an element of the scriptures that actually does shape the way that we think and we act? Absolutely. That's this process that we call repentance, right? Um, But it's not the whole thing. You know, and they would focus on, you know, my reason receives this, my mind is shaped, and, you know, so I, I think the right way. And that's what faith is all about. Is that kind of like prosperity gospel today? Sort of? Sort of, yeah. You know, it, it, it's a little less mystical, I think. Because the prosperity gospel, you kind of just name it and claim it, and, you know, yeah. I'm thinking the right way, and so it's going to get me there. This, I would think the right way, though. Yes, um, I think that this is probably a little bit more scriptural in what you're thinking about, but it's really rooted in the law. Yeah. So it'd be about morality and you know how do I become virtuous and, and, and those types of things. You know, whereas the prosperity gospel, as I understand it, it's when I think you know in this positive kind of way. Um, is that Norman Vincent Peale that um, the power of positive thinking? Um, you know, so, you know, when I'm thinking in the right way and I'm thinking positively, you know, that's going to change the way that interact with the, the universe, right? You know, and so that becomes the name it and claim it thing. Um, the other major spiritual influence around Luther were heretics. And we can't discount the importance of those who were labeled heretics because many of them were what we would call pre-reformers. One of them in particular uh, was a guy by the name of Jan Hus. Um, he, uh, he was a Catholic priest, and um, he taught about uh, the Lord's Supper, some things that, uh, um, in, in terms of, you know, everybody should receive both kinds, the bread and the wine, and uh, that it's not a re-sacrifice of Christ, but, you know, you're really receiving his body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, and uh, apparently at some point, Luther comes across this, you know, and he's been teaching this. He says, we're all Hussites. You know, so um, all of these movements you know, believed and taught that Christians must do something to be saved. Catch that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something that you have to do uh, to be saved. And all through this, you know, being a Christian was seen as a sort of spiritual contract. And, and this is really, really wrapped up in, uh, in, in the statement. I think that this was uh, Thomas Aquinas um, set down as, you know, how do I live my life? As a, as a faithful Christian, he says, do what is in you. You know, kind of a, just do your best. Yeah, like we always remember in our mind that we have been saved by faith and grace. Right, and now knowing that you've been saved by grace and faith, then, yeah, go on, do your best. And that, that hope and that confidence. What Aquinas um, taught, if, if I've got the right... right uh, right person, but what the church taught at the time was, well, if you're going to earn God's favor, you, you just kind of have to do your best. Yeah. And then anything that you get wrong, don't worry. You know, if you have faith, God will send you to purgatory and you can work that off. Yes, Cindy? Did, did Luther say sin boldly? He did. 
um, in kind of an interesting context. He had a... Uh, we always talk about Luther, but there is there is another person who is part of this uh, Lutheran Reformation. Who is there? Are several of them that are important, but like right next to Luther is a guy named Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was actually the scholar of the uh, um, Lutheran Reformation. Have any of you ever heard of him before? Yeah. Good. Um, Philip had some problems. But he, he is, he, he's the, the academic. Now, I said earlier, Luther's a genius, and he has serious academic chops. But he talks like a swineherd. <laughs> just foul. And, you know, and peop, his friends would be embarrassed by the things that came out of his mouth. He was a street fighter. He's a debater. He's, you know, he's a showman. You know, uh, he, he did a debate... Uh, the Heidelberg Disputation, which uh, um, I've attached to the back here uh, for you, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more later. He's, he's debating this guy named Johann Eck. And um, Johann Eck is a doctor. Dr. Eck. D.R. Eck. And so he just starts calling him Dreck. <laughs> which in German means poop. <laughs> it's not quite that nice. Not quite that nice, right. That's the way Luther was. So, I mean, he is very much the, 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 the spark and the, you know, the one that's getting everybody's attention. But there are definitely other people around him who are very important. Um, and Melanchthon is, is right there. And uh, it's, it's kind of unfortunate that um, a lot of Lutherans are not aware of him. And, um, and by the time we're, we're done here, hopefully you'll understand why. Um, because we have a really bad name, like Melanchthonites or something. <laughs> Which, if I remember right, means black dirt. So, yeah. Um, no, there's more to it than that, unfortunately. But even at that, you know, when we start talking about reformers, you know, the big names that come up are, are always Luther and Calvin. And rightly so. But I, I think that there needs to be three. I think Melanchthon should be part of a very serious triumvirate. Um, so um, Luther always really struggled with a troubled conscience. Um, even after he joined the monastery, you know, there, there's this idea that you know if he's there at the monastery, he's doing God things, right? So that's going to make him feel good, and it didn't. It just sent him into this pit of despair. Because he really saw that he was never, ever good enough. He, he could never do enough. Uh, and uh, he had a, uh, um, a man in his life by the name of Johann von Staupitz. Um, he was his priest. He was his confessor. And Luther about wore him out. Because he would go to confession four and five times a day. And he would just enumerate all of these things that were burdening his soul. You know, um, some people think that uh, Luther was probably manic depressive. They're probably not wrong. You know, I mean, when, when you look at, at his life and, and the way that he lived. And, um, you know, just rough. And, you know, there's no medicine, you know, per se at, at this time. You know, he had... Um, he had kidney stones, and they treated that with uh, goat dung mixed with wine. Yeah, that's the that's the state of medicine at the time, and uh, you know. So when you had somebody who, you know, is wearing themselves out, you know, with a confession type of thing, you know, the idea is this guy's this guy has too much time on his hands, and so what we need to do is we need to make him work. And so they pushed him back into a seminary so that he'd get ordained, you know, and become a priest. And, uh, you know, he does his first mass. He is so bothered by his conscience that he, he almost dropped the, the host, you know, when he, when he picks it up to, you know, speaking the words of institution. He grabs the cup and his hands are shaking and he almost spills the wine, you know, and he's just, you know... It, 
I'm not worthy of this. And, you know, he's still very, very bothered. And then in, you know, 1510, um, they're like, okay, this guy's really bright and he's got a lot going for him. What we need to do is really keep him working. So we're going to send him to, uh, to Rome to become our representative in uh, some dialogue that was taking place there. Now, this was an opportunity for Luther to calm his conscience because uh, going to Rome could be counted as a pilgrimage that could remove sin. It's that transaction thing, right? And there were things you could do in Rome. You could go to St. Peter's Basilica and you know, climb the steps on your knees and pray on the, That's St. Peter's Basilica. Ah, whatever. There's a church there. And they would crawl up on their knees, pray on each step, and that would get you points to go to heaven you know and he's doing this and people are going by get out of the way get out of the way hurry along and he's just just completely disillusioned by what happens in rome um rome was really a cesspool at the time uh, a lot of prostitution uh, and and actually like cesspool you know you had these multiple story homes and people would take their chamber pot and just dump it in the street out the window as you're walking by. Um, people would just relieve themselves on the buildings. You know, so, I mean, it stank. And, you know, he's expecting to have this really holy experience. And he just walks away absolutely disillusioned. And so, because he's such a mess still, we know what needs to happen. He needs more work. And so he has to get his doctorate in theology and he becomes the first professor at the University of Wittenberg. You know, um, it's a brand new uni university, and uh, he is going to be the hotshot professor that's going to draw people uh, in. Uh, in his first years there, he taught on Psalms, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And it was while he's studying Romans and Galatians that his theology is transformed, where he really discovers the gospel. Uh, part of the reason for that is um, he started studying the Bible in the original languages. Greek first in the New Testament. And then uh, Philip Melanchthon's specialty was Hebrew. And uh, that transformed Luther's study of the Old Testament. And it's in Romans and Galatians that he discovers the two types of righteousness. Something that we spent a lot of time talking about. And... Um, so he, he recognizes there's a righteousness of God. And Luther says this about this righteousness of God, this, this objective righteousness where God is holy and we're not. Uh, he says, I hated that word, the righteousness of God, which according to the custom and the use of all teachers, I had been taught to understand in the philosophical sense with respect to the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, in which God is righteous and punishes the unjust sinner. And then in Romans, he discovers this righteousness that comes from faith. This passive righteousness that we've been talking about over the last months here. He, he coins this phrase, this idea that we are similiustus et peccator, that we're at the same time uh, just, righteous in God's sight, and a sinner. That by our deeds... We're sinners, but because God has declared us forgiven, we are righteous in his sight. And we're always both. And it just really transformed the way that he looked at, what's my relationship with God? Is it about the things that I do? No, because I'm a sinner. It's about what God has done for me to make me just, to make me righteous. And for Luther, this was really, truly a, a matter of, of life and death absolutely shaped and transformed him. And it's while he's learning these things and while he, these things are, are starting to come to his mind that a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel, apparently everybody in Germany other than Martin was Johann. Um, he comes to town and he's selling indulgences. He's selling slips of paper that say, you know, your sins are forgiven. Um, or, you know, your loved one in purgatory you buy an indulgence, and it helps them to get out of purgatory. And uh, there, were, there were two very powerful forces behind this selling of indulgences. One of them was Pope Leo X, 
who was doing a little building project at the time. You know, that's, that was St. Peter's Basilica. Um, and, uh, and the other was a guy by the name of uh, Albert of Mainz, and he was a bishop, a uh, very wealthy bishop in the area, and um, he was trying to buy another bishopric, and so he needed even more money, you know, which you're not supposed to have too, but if you had enough money, then, well, we, you, know, you make a big enough donation, we can look the other way. It's kind of the idea. Um, Tetzel was what you might call an itinerant preacher, he was a huckster. He was an entertainer, kind of like some of the revivalists that, that you might see in, in uh, um, uh, movies or, or whatever. Um, there was a movie with, um, oh, Steve Martin, where he played like a televangelist type of person. You know, he's just a complete and total con man. That, that's this guy. And he would come into town and it was a big, big show. And you know he had all of these things where he's preaching, and you know it's all exciting. And and remember, there's no TV, there's no radio. This is your entertainment. And um, at some point, he would say, "Do you not hear the voices of your dead relatives and others crying out to you and saying, 'Pity us, pity us, for we are in dire punishment and torment, from which you can redeem us with a pittance, and you will not.'" He's a big manipulator. And then he would get to his line, Will you not then for a quarter of a florin receive these letters of indulgences? Like he's doing them a favor, right? Through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul safely and securely into the homeland of paradise. Once the coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. Of course, he said it in German, but it also rhymed. <laughs> this, this is truly a crass form of transaction of religious goods. And this happened in a whole bunch of different ways. People were selling relics and, and doing the pilgrimages. And what was the money used for? Building St. Peter's, buying another bishopric, you know. Um, it, it, it was all a big fundraiser for the Pope and for this other bishop. And Luther's watching this, he sees it happening, and on October 31st of 1517, he posts the 95 Theses. These are a beginning, they're, they're a spark. Make no mistake, Luther is still very Roman Catholic in his thinking and in his trust for the Pope. Have, have any of you ever read the 95 Theses? They're out there. They're not exactly earth-shattering, are they? Some of them I'm not sure he even agreed with. Right. It was just to argue. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because that, that was what you did. That was his job. Yeah. You know, so academically, what you did at the time was you come up with an idea and you fight about it. Okay. And, and, and so, you know, he, he puts down these 95 ideas. It, it, we're going to talk about them. But in that is this idea that forgiveness of sins does not come through purchase of indulgences, although it can still come by indulgences as a gift. You know, um, when uh, um, the current Pope, um, Francis, uh, was uh, um, installed, I don't know the right word, consecrated, um, if you watch that, it said during the, the program that if you watched this, you got an indulgence. You know, they, they had no problem with the idea, you know, Luther didn't have any trouble with the idea at the time that you could have an indulgence where the Pope then gives you some extra grace. Even for Lutherans? I mean, uh, if we watched it, we would get the benefit too. Probably not, you know, because we're a bunch of heretics. Um, but, uh, but that's, you know, this, this, you know, it could be given away. He's upset about the selling. Um, he's looking for a dialogue. He's looking for a debate. And he wrote these in Latin. And uh, others translated into German. They were printed and distributed. And now he's threatening these two powerful people's revenue. And that got their attention. And this is one of those blessings of technology things because, you know, the printing press is new technology. 
as these ideas are being spread all around Europe. So for Luther, the making of a theologian, uh, it sounds similar to this ladder of monks thing, but uh, it's kind of different in its spiritual formation. He says you start with prayer, you move to meditation, and then you have trouble. Because this his spirituality is very earthly. You know, your life of faith takes place in this world. And, and so he would say basically, you know, through prayer and meditation, you, you're, you're formed. You know, he's learning God's word. He, he's learning about this, this righteousness and forgiveness. And then by teaching this, by trying to act out on what he's hearing and praying about, he experienced trouble, major trouble. Then he has to defend his teachings. He has to refine his beliefs, which drives him back to prayer and meditation on the scriptures. And, and, and for him, he recognized this as a cycle in the Christian life. You know, you, you, you pray, you read the word, you try to live what the word teaches, and oh, now problems. So I'm going to pray about that, and I'm going to go back to the word, and, and it's just kind of this over and over again. Um, in the spring of 1518, he participated in a disputation, uh, the Heidelberg Disputation, uh, which is a, a conversation among the Augustinians and other religious orders, other monks. Um, and, uh, and in a lot of ways, that document is way more important than the 95 Theses because now he's, these are things he believes. He's not just trying to make points and arguments. These are things that, you know, uh, and that's why I included them uh, for you uh, to, to read through. And some of these, you know, you, you will recognize these ideas as distinctly Lutheran. Um, he was constantly under attack and in, in, in defense, you know, so he's really always refining his beliefs. In fall of 1518, he gets summoned to Rome. That would have been a death sentence. You know, they would have burned him at the stake had he gone. Um, but when the, uh, the summons came to uh, his, his elector, his prince, um, in December of 1518, uh, Frederick the Wise says, no, I'm not sending him. Um, Luther, Luther was drawing people to the university. That meant tuition. You know, and Frederick the Wise wants his university to be the university in Europe. You know, so he, he's, in a sense, not going to kill the golden goose. Um, and the elector's support is a very important part of Luther's success where others failed. It was because of the support of Frederick the Wise that he lived and was able to continue his work. He was able to continue to publish and to teach and to study and, and to think things through and to debate. And in this process, God intervenes in history. So you got Luther doing his thing there in, in Wittenberg but on the world stage, January 12 of 1519, remember, he's summoned to come in the fall of, uh, of 1518, December 1518, his prince says no. January 1519, the emperor dies. And you remember, I, I, the title for Frederick the Wise is he's an elector. This is a very powerful position because he is one of a handful of men across Europe who will elect the next emperor. So Frederick the Wise is a very powerful figure that nobody is going to want to mess with because they want him to vote for them. And so uh, in June of 1519, they elect Charles I of Spain uh, Holy Roman Emperor. This was not without uh, some controversy. He was not the Pope's first pick, you might say, but he's the one that was elected. Now, Charles was not friendly to the Lutheran cause, but he knew he needed Frederick's support. He knew he needed these other German Lutheran princes because, well, something happened in 1453. Constantinople became Istanbul. Constantinople fell. Uh, the Ottoman Empire is rising. 
And um, uh, Sultan Selim I, he reigned from 1512 to 1520. And under his reign, the Ottoman Empire took the Arabian Peninsula and all of North Africa. The, the empire literally became like 70% bigger. His son, uh, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, he reigned from 1520 to 1566. He had his eyes on Europe. And he made major pushes into Eastern Europe. So here's Charles. He sees what's happening. It's not happening to him yet, but you know it's in the wind. He knows he needs these these countries. He knows he needs their soldiers, uh, you know, to fight for him. And this all adds up to the this context where Luther is protected. Whereas in the past, somebody would have maybe just gone in and grabbed him. They're like, mm, we, we need to have these people on our side. So let me run really quickly through, through some of these dates here. Um, in 1520, the Diet of Worms, he didn't have to eat worms. A diet is a meeting. This is that, that famous um, moment where, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, 1521, um, he is... I think I have a typo there. I think that, anyhow, um, uh, he uh, he's kidnapped by Frederick the Wise's soldiers, and he's taken to the Wartburg Castle. You know, he's a rich prince, so he's got multiple properties. He literally tells his his knights, "Kidnap him. Don't tell me where you take him, because the emperor is going to ask me where is he, and I'm going to have to honestly say I don't know." That was his that was his way to, to do that. Um, in 1521, he starts translating the New Testament into German. This is hugely important for uh, solidifying the German language. It also helps to unify Germany as a nation. That doesn't happen in Luther's lifetime, but it moves in that direction. Um, 1525, he marries Catherine von Bora, who was a, a runaway nun. They had six children. He has Hans, names after dad, right? Uh, Elizabeth, who died at just a couple months old. M Magdalena, who was Luther's heart, who dies at about 13 years old in his arms. This is, this is a time of, of plague and disease, and you know, a lot of kids did not make it to adulthood. Um, Martin, Paul, and Margaret. That's his mom's name. Um, in 1529, he writes the small and the large catechisms because he saw all kinds of problems in the, what was going on in the church and what was not being taught. 1530, uh, the Lutherans are called to a meeting to present what they believe. Another document is published. This one's by Philip Melanchthon. It's called the Augsburg Confession. Um, he, uh, he, he points out these are what we have in common with the Catholic Church, these are our points of disagreement. It's rejected out of hand in a document that's called the Confutation. They didn't even give the document to the Lutherans. You know, they said, you know, you know, this is everything that's wrong, and they didn't even give them the document, but they had a bunch of scholars sitting there, students sitting there, taking notes the whole time that it was being read, and so they had the gist of it. And Melanchthon is furious, and he writes the apology to the Augsburg Confession. It's not a, an I'm sorry apology, it's a defense apology. 1537, Luther writes the small called articles. This was supposed to be like his last will and testament about what he believed. And 1543, he publishes a horrible document called Against the Jews and Their Lies. You will hear people reference this. Remember I told the story about running into the Jewish woman at uh, the thrift store? Mm -hmm. This is what she knew. Okay? And it is truly despicable. You know? And uh, we, we must not defend that. Uh, February of uh, 1546, he dies. Uh, his priest was there when he died, and he asked him, you know, Brother Martin, do you want to die in this confession of faith? One word, Yah. And uh, the next day, when they're going through his clothes, they found a, a slip of paper in his pocket. Uh, it says, we are all beggars. And that was kind of his spirituality. 
And then you got a big jump to 1577, um, the formula of Concord. There's a guy by the name of Martin Chemnitz. He was called the second Martin. And uh, there was a, a quote that said, if Martin had not come along, Martin would not have survived. In other words, if Martin Chemnitz had not come along, Martin Luther's teachings would not have survived. And that's, uh, that's because Melanchthon was way more willing to compromise for the sake of peace. And he gets dinged so badly for this. But from 1546 to 1547, the emperor comes and wages war on the Lutherans and just kills all kinds of people. He has to go into hiding, you know, just on and on and on. I think it's really hard to blame Melanchthon. He wasn't the street fighter. He wasn't the brawler. You know, he, he's more of a gentle soul. He wants peace and, and concord. And he gives up some things that he probably shouldn't have. Um, he was uh, uh, friendly with all kinds of different theological movements. He was familiar with John Calvin. I don't think they ever met. Uh, but there was, I think, some correspondence there. He knew what Calvin taught. And Calvinism, Calvinism was actually influencing some of the uh, uh, Lutheran theologians of the time. And uh, they said, no, we, we need to stand firmly on what we believe. And so they put together a document that's called the Book of Concord. And the Book of Concord contains uh, the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. It has the Augsburg Confession and the Apology for the Augsburg Confession, the Small Called Articles, a fun little document called the Treatise on the Power and the Primacy of the Pope. Have you ever heard where the Lutherans say the Pope is the Antichrist? That's that document. Um, we can, I can, if you want me to talk about that another time, I can. Small Catechism, Large Catechism, and Formula of Concord. Lutherans are what we call confessional. We bind ourselves to those documents as a true exposition of what the scriptures teach, okay? Now, if you would like to know more about those Lutheran confessions, uh, there's a resource here. Uh, there's a podcast called the Thinking Fellows Podcast. And um, for this year, they are working their way through this Book of Concord. And uh, they've talked about different documents. There's a link there if you type that in. Um, if you go back to January, you could actually listen to them talk about all the different parts. It's kind of interesting. Uh, we have copies of the Book of Concord. It's a very accessible book. And uh, if you feel like reading the Heidelberg Disputation, these are, these are just the, the high points. It's not the actual nitty-gritty of what he said. So, okay, we got to go to church. Thank you for sticking with me.